Let's pray. Father, what a promise that you have given to us this morning that all who are in Christ are secure. Lord, this morning we, we come to you and we are desiring to, to learn. And we pray that you would open our hearts to your revelation in the book of Jude. Father, I, I pray for myself. I offer myself to you this morning in my weakness. I pray that your strength, Lord, would be made perfect. We look to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if we were to boil down the theme of the book of Jude to one phrase, it would be this. Contend for the faith. In the midst of apostasy, Jude is calling believers not to fear or to live in fatalism, but to refuse to compromise and stand their ground in the truth. And here we stand as a body of believers almost 2,000 years later, and the truth is this book, this letter has never been more relevant than it is right now. We, we look around the, the Christian landscape and we can see the, the rise of postmodernism, which is declaring that there really is no absolute truth. We've seen the mixture of New Age spiritualism into Christian doctrine. We've also seen the growing push for compromise. And we've seen the devastating effect that these false teachings have had upon Christianity. And so this morning, Jude's call is our call. And so we've seen so far the background in verses 1 and 2. We learned that his letter was written to Jewish believers who had an extended background in Old Testament and non-canonical writings. And Jude began by encouraging them in their security of their salvation and reminding them of God's thoughts towards them. Then in verses 3 and 4, we arrived at the big picture. What is the book of Jude all about? And we saw that this letter was birthed out of a burden. Jude was awakened to the burden that was in his heart because of the onslaught of false teachers. And these were men that had crept into the church. They were spiritual terrorists. And they were using the grace of God as a license to sin, and ultimately they were rejecting the lordship of Christ. And so Jude commanded these believers to earnestly contend for the Christian faith. And then in verses 5 and 16, we broke down Jude's brazen warning against these false teachers. And so before Jude could tell us how to fight for the faith, he tells us why we should fight for the faith. This was not a matter of minor differences. These false teachers, they were facing eternal consequences, and at the same time, they were bringing others with them. And so Jude reviewed scriptural demonstrations of God's judgment on apostates in the past. He then sought to identify these apostates, to take the, the mask off, so to speak, of these spiritual te terrorists and expose their true character and then finally, he proclaimed their ultimate end as recipients of God's judgment. And so here we stand at the second half of the book of Jude. And the question is, what can we practically do? When it's all said and done, I mean, how can we strengthen ourselves as believers to fight for the faith? How can we personally minister to those who have been infected by false teachers, and they are swaying over to apostasy. And then what about God? How are we to think about God in the midst of the chaos of false teachers in the church? Well, welcome to the second half of the book of Jude. This morning, we're going to be studying the practical instructions that Jude provides for believers to fight for the faith, and then we're going to close out our time on several promises of God that are incredible and important to know. So in verses 17 through 23, we're going to look now at what we call the believer's instructions. So God is not calling us as believers to be passive. 
He's calling us to take an active role. And so what we're going to see is that Jude provides three exhortations for us to follow. Now, the first two are defensive in nature. And they're defensive because they're, they're teaching us how to protect our hearts. That's critical. If we are to, to stand in the gap, we need to first learn how to guard our hearts against lies. And then the final exhortation is going to be offensive. How do we practically go and reach these people who are being deceived? And so first, let's look at this call to remember God's warnings. Jude is going to call us to develop discernment. So starting in verse 17, I wanted us to read this opening phrase, and it says this. But you, beloved. Well, let's stop there. The word but here is, is important because it's a contrasting conjunction. And what it's revealing is that there's a transition happening in the letter. So far, Jude has really been focusing on these false teachers within the church. But now he's going to turn his focus back on believers. And notice what he calls believers. Beloved. Don't you love that? I mean, he could have said, but you Christians, or but you saints, or but you favored ones. But he says, beloved. This is a favorite word of Jude, and he's reminding these believers all the way back in verse 1 that they are the objects of God's love. That God's love towards them is not because of anything that they have done, but it's simply because God has chosen to set his love upon them. And so in contrast to the false teachers who are marked out by condemnation, Jude is reminding the believers that they've been marked out to be loved by God. Next, we see a call to remember. Let's pick up on verse 17. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And so Jude is exhorting his Readers to remember the warnings that the apostles gave according to false teachers and apostasy. And I believe that Jude has a couple purposes in mind here. I believe, number one, he wants to talk about general warnings about apostasy made by multiple apostles. And then he wants to narrow in on a specific warning that's given by Peter. So let me explain. First of all, general warnings. When we look at the New Testament, 26 out of 27 books warn about false teachers, and many of them are given by apostles. For example, the Apostle Paul often spoke about apostasy and, and false teachers. We see one of those in 1 Timothy 4.1. He says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And we certainly see this played out in the book of Jude. If you remember in verse 8, these false teachers were those that were relying on their dreams. They were turning away from the revelation of God's word, and they were turning towards themselves and doctrines of demons. The apostle John was also an apostle that warned believers about this coming apostasy. 1 John 4.1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so Jude here is, is calling these believers to remember what the apostles have said beforehand. But I believe Jude also has a very specific warning from the Apostle Peter. In fact, when you look at verse 18, this is a specific quote from 2 Peter 3.3. So if you want to keep your finger on Jude, let's turn to the left a few pages to 2 Peter. And let's look at chapter 3. And Peter says this. 
This is now, beloved, the second letter. I'm looking at verse 1. I am writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. Now look at verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. This is a direct this is directly what Jude is saying. In verse 4 he says, And saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And so the description that, that Peter and Jude are providing of these false teachers is really probing in to the hardness of their heart. Rather than being worshipers of Christ, they're mockers. They're scoffers, and they're slaves after their own lust. And I think it's important to point out this, this reality. They're not talking about people outside of the church. I mean, we would expect this type of attitude, right, from atheists or from professors, right, in, in institutions to mock and to scoff after the things of God. But these were people that claimed to be believers, and yet they were, they were scoffing. They were scoffing at the lordship of Christ. They were scoffing at personal sanctification. And if you think about it, don't we see this today? I mean, think for a moment about several denominations that have chosen to mock the sufficiency of Scripture as it pertains to areas like the sanctity of marriage, sexual immorality, and even the origin of men that is found in Genesis. Douglas Moo comments on this, and he says, Mocking is one all-too-typical response to the truth of God's revelations. Mockers do not so much reason about the truth of God as they disdain and belittle it. Rather than standing under God's word, mockers, as Peter points out, follow after their own desires. And so Jude is, is calling believers, and they're calling you and I to remember these prophecies and arm our minds with the truth. So let's turn back to Jude. And in verse 19, he provides a, a condemning conclusion. It says this. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And so here Jude is bringing a connection. And he's reaching out and he's connecting the past apostolic prophecies of these false teachers with the present false teachers of his time. And he's saying these are exactly who they've been talking about. And I want you to imagine Jude standing there with a condemning finger and he's saying, These are the ones. These are the ones that are in your midst. And, and notice as we look at verse 19, the fruit and the root of their decision to mock God and to follow after lust. So first of all, let's look at the fruit. It says, these are the ones who cause divisions. So rather than creating unity, these false teachers, they divide the church. So the word division, it literally means distinction. And it gives the idea that these men, they were, they were elevating themselves above others. And then they were inviting their followers to do the same. They weren't interested in submitting to the lordship of Christ. Instead, they wanted to have the preeminence. And you know, I think it's interesting. When you study 1 Corinthians, out of all the issues that the Corinthians had, and they had a lot even issues like sexual immorality. The, the, the first issue that the Apostle Paul focuses on, division. Division. And the, the believers, they weren't divided over important matters such as doctrine. They were, they were divided on matters like self-centeredness and self-exaltation. And it was a cancer eating into the church. And so these men were catalysts of that type of of division. It goes on and it says, they not only cause division, but they are worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. Jude does not mince words here. 
He's not pulling punches. So the term worldly-minded can mean naturally-minded or, or sensual. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where Paul is contrasting believers and unbelievers. And he says that the natural man, the unbeliever, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to them. And so these false teachers, they had no capacity for God because ultimately they were devoid of His Spirit. These were men that were slaves to their own sensuality. And so, again, Jude is reminding his believers to remember these prophecies ahead of time. And so my question to you, and I'll just open this up, is why would it be important for Jude's readers to remember that the false teachers in their midst were prophesied beforehand? Why, why do you think that impo- would be important for them to remember? Yes, sir. Amen, brother. That's right. God is still on his throne. Amen? God is not surprised by this. And neither should these believers. God has given us his word so that we can be prepared. I have an 18-year-old daughter, almost 18, tomorrow, Julia. And, you know, I want, just imagine if she's driving back from Arkansas where she wants to go to school and on her way, I call her and I say, honey, I just want you to know that around 4, 4.30, there is probably going to be a storm that's going to come your way. And when that does come, and if it's intense, I want you to pull off the highway, find the nearest gas station, and park under the awning so that you're safe. Now, does that advice, does that warning stop the storm? But it prepares her for the storm. You see... Jude, and ultimately God, he wanted to prepare these believers. And by the way, he wants to prepare us for the storm in this life. And to know that even when it comes, praise God, it doesn't take him by surprise. He's on his throne. And so the the second practical instruction we're going to see today is that God wants us to remain in his love. Remain in his love. In his love. We see this in verse 20 and 21. And so the first instruction focused on developing discernment. This instruction is going to focus on deepening our encouragement. All right? So let's look at verse 20 and verse 21. It says this But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So as we explore this incredible provision God has given in a believer's fight for faith, it's important that we first understand its grammatical context. So I'm going to share some grammatical things, okay? But I'm going to be brief. So bear with me, and then I'll, I promise I'm going to make this very, very um, practical for us, okay? So when we look at this verse, you might want to underline the verb keep. Jude used only one imperative in these two verses, and it's that word right there, keep. The other three verbs, which is building, praying, and waiting, those are participles. These participles modify the command to keep yourselves in God's love, which sets forth the means by which the readers can do so. Now you're saying, what does all that mean? Here's what it means. In other words, Jude is providing us in these verses three practical ways that we can keep ourselves in the love of God. So we could say it this way. Keep yourselves in the love of God. By building yourselves up in the most holy faith, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and praying in the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to dive into each one of these instructions. But before we do, I want to say a few things on this phrase, keeping yourself in the love of God. And I want to first define what it doesn't mean before I define what it does mean. This is important. 
When, when Jude says here, keep yourselves in the love of God, he's not referring to believers somehow keeping themselves being loved by God as if it's something that we can lose. He's not implying, as one commentator put it, live in such a way to make yourself lovable to God. You see, he's already made that clear in verse 1. He's made clear that we as believers are beloved. We are loved by God, not based on anything that we have done, but on his sovereign choice. And furthermore, we are kept by God. We are safe in his loving arms. So Jude is here, he's not speaking about earning God's love, but what he's speaking about is receiving God's love. And there's a word for this. Our Savior gave it, and it's this, abide in God's love. In fact, let's keep our finger here on Jude, but let's turn to the Gospel of John together. John chapter 15. What a, what a precious passage of Scripture. Of course, this is the passage about abiding. And our Savior, he declares, I am the vine and you are what? That's right, amen. And, and he continuously says, abide, remain, receive throughout this, this chapter. And then in verse 9, read with me, it says this. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. What? Abide in my love. And the question is, how do we do that, Jesus? How do we abide in your love? And praise God, he gives the answer. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Simply put, our dependent obedience to Christ is our provision to abide in his love. I want you to think about Jesus because Jesus, he, he knew infinitely the love of the Father. He knew that. But as the God-man, he received and he lived in the love of the Father by choosing to yield his life to the Father's will and to depend on him moment by moment. And he's inviting us to do the same. And I think this gives us a profound implication, and it's this. The commandments of Jesus are out of his love for us. We know this, don't we, as parents? Why do we tell our children, don't go out into the street? It's because we love them. We want to protect them, right? That's why in 1 John 5, 3, John says his commandments are not grievous. In fact, Jesus proclaimed the opposite. Look again at verse 11. He said, these things I've spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The commandments of Christ give us joy. And so Jude is, is giving us some practical commandments now so that we can abide in the love of Christ. Let's turn back to Jude in the first one, in verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So if Jude's readers were going to oppose falsehood, they needed to build themselves up in the truth. In other words, Jude is calling for the believers, for you and I, to live our lives deeply entrenched and built upon God's word. When he says the most holy faith, that's a reference going back to verse 4 where Jude is talking about the essentials, right? The, the, the core, the non-negotiable truths of the gospel. These were the very truths that were being attacked. And so for believers, they were to build themselves up. We are to build ourselves up in the very thing that false teachers are trying to break down. And so how does this take place? Well, I think there's a few practical ways. Number one personal study of the Word of God. We see this in Acts 20, verse 32. Here's Paul, and he's speaking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says this, 
I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to what? Build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. I think one of the unfortunate marks of a lot of Christianity today is an ignorance of God's word. And that leads to the opportunity of deception. And we counter that by going the other way, right? We counter that by diving into God's word so that we have a capacity to fight for the faith and then minister to those who are being deceived by it. A second way is participation in the body of Christ. We see this in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and you can see that on your handout, and it says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to what? The building up of the body of Christ. And so God has designed church to be a provision for edification. And this takes place as as we as believers, we receive the word of God through faithful shepherds who are called by God to teach and preach the word of God. And what ends up happening is that the saints are equipped for service and then we are encouraged to build up the body of Christ. And you know, in, in Pastor Dan's sermon on Jude, which again, I highly recommend, He pointed out that the phrase, building ourselves up, is not singular. In other words, he doesn't say building ourselves up. But he says what? Building ourselves up is in plural. We are all part of the mutual edification of one another. The, The encouragement that you and I give to each other as we meet together is God's provision To be built up. And and just as a practical way of application, have you considered your portion in that? Have you considered that you and your love for another believer, your smile, your encouragement, your prayer could be the very provision that that other person needs to be built up and to remain in the love of God? Amen? Amen? Well, he goes on, we build ourselves up on our most holy faith and then praying in the Holy Spirit. And then it's interesting because some have thought this means to be to pray in tongues. But the correct interpretation of this is to pray according to the will of the Holy Spirit and in dependence on the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 6.18 At the end of this incredible discourse on the armor of God, it says this, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. So in the midst of spiritual warfare, our command as believers is to deepen our dependency on God through prayer. John MacArthur put it this way, When we pray in the Holy Spirit... We submit ourselves to him. We rest on his wisdom. We seek his will and we trust in his power. And you know, this is in direct contrast, isn't it, from these false teachers. They're devoid of the spirit. They're depending on themselves. We as believers are filled with the spirit. And we're called to pray in the Holy Spirit. Well, finally, this, this last Instruction, this last provision to remain in God's love is that we would wait for the mercy of God that leads to eternal life. He actually says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so, this is speaking of the second coming of Christ and the experience of mercy that all true believers will experience at his coming. And isn't that a wonderful hope (laughs) that instead of wrath, if you and I are in Christ, when the Holy One comes, there will not come judgment, there will not come wrath, but there will come mercy. (laughs) Praise God. And we are to wait for it 
anxiously. The word waiting, it means to welcome, and it connotes to do so with great expectancy. John was like that. You read about him in Revelation 22, verse 20. And Jesus is speaking, and he says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And here's John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, may that be our response as well. And so here's a question for us as a group, and don't be shy. Why, why is it? Why, would it? why would living with an eternal perspective be a safeguard against apostasy or false teachers? Why do you think that is? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. You're exactly right. Yes? Absolutely. So it, it, it gives us an eternal perspective. You know, I, I think that one of the draws of false teachers is focusing on our life now, right? Have your best life now, right? And it lures people in to cast off restraints that seem to be holding them back and just enjoy the pleasures of sin. But when we live expecting Jesus to return at any moment, it produces a healthy fear and a desire to live in God's holiness. Amen? And so as a practical application, here's my question to me and to you. How often do you think about meeting Jesus Christ face to face? Do you live in daily anticipation of his coming? And if you did, if you believe that even today he was coming, how would that change your life? This is a provision for us to abide in the love of God. Well, Jude moves on to his final practical instruction, and it's this. Reach out to others. Reach out to others. And so now that we've looked at these defensive postures and we have learned how to strengthen our faith and to encourage ourselves in the Lord... It's now time to take an offensive stance and to reach out to those in need. And we find this in verse 22 and 23. And so let's start in verse 22. It says this. And have mercy on some who are doubting. So it's interesting because as you look at these, these verses, Jude is actually categorizing these people that need ministry into three categories. And each one is deeper and deeper entrenched in a lie. And so the first category, he says, our ministry to them is that we would have mercy on them. These are those who are doubting. Now these people are, are those that are doubting because of false teaching. They're not fully committed to apostasy. But they're beginning to lean that way. Galatians 5, 7, and 8, it describes this type of person. Paul said this to the Galatians, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. In verse 9, he says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. These, these people were being leavened by false teaching. And they were beginning to doubt but notice the attitude that we're to have towards these people. He says, have mercy. Have mercy. It's, this, it's the same word that we see, compassion. Jesus had the same attitude towards the broken, towards the hurting. And so instead of growing frustrated, it's, it's a call to choose to walk in someone else's shoes and to extend loving encouragement. It's recognizing the toll 
that these lies have had on their heart and seeking to restore them. Galatians 6.1 puts it this way. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Well, Jude moves on to a new group. And in verse 23, he says, Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Snatching them out of the fire. This group is, are those that have become even more convinced of false teaching. And they are on the verge of eternal destruction. And, the, and this, this term, snatching out of the fire, it actually is um, referencing Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where Joshua the high priest is described as a brand that is plucked from the fire. And so for time's sake, I've put this verse down on your notes, and I'll read this to you. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then he said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And so here's Joshua, the high priest, and he is on the verge of eternal damnation because of his sin, but he was rescued by God and forgiven. And this is a beautiful illustration of redemption, and God is inviting us to participate in it. And so the picture here of these believers is they they are right on the edge of hell, and we're to snatch them out before it's too late. And this is a much different approach than the first, isn't it? I want you to think for a moment if you had a little child and they're walking towards an enormous bonfire. Now, the last thing you and I are going to do is just kind of try to gently coax them and say, now, now, son, stop walking towards that fire. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to run over and we're going to snatch them, right, before it's too late. And that's the the type of urgency that, that Jude is evoking towards these people. This is not a time to mince words. It's a time and a ministry to be direct and to be firm. But it's still a ministry of compassion. Finally, there's a third category. And and it says this, starting again, verse 23. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And so these last group are those who are the most entrenched in false teaching and might even include the false teachers themselves. To this group, Jude says to to show mercy, but he qualifies that by saying, show mercy with what? With fear. So this is a ministry that is calling for sobriety and a healthy fear of avoiding becoming deceived ourselves. The implication is that these people are not only deceived, but they are actually infecting other people. Now, I have to warn you that Jude's language here is graphic. When he says the garment here, in the Greek, the garment is referring to one's undergarments. And when he says stained by the flesh, that is describing garments that have been soiled by bodily waste. And so just as you and I would be appalled and on guard of getting too close to a person that is in that state, especially that they have purposed to be in that state, we should be cautious in approaching this type of spiritually infected person as well, lest we become infected by their deception. And so this is a ministry of great caution, and it's a ministry that really is only for the mature. Thomas Schreiner writes, perhaps mercy is demonstrated especially through prayer in cases like these. 
But nonetheless, God still extends mercy for people in this state. God can do the impossible. And my exhortation to us this morning is that, is there anyone in your life that you have prematurely concluded they're too far gone? You see, we don't know the hearts of people. Only God does. And so may we remain faithful in praying for unbelievers and for those who are lost in deception. Well, finally, we come to this last section I've entitled The Breathtaking Promises of God in verse 24 and 25. Last year around this time, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Julie, and I, we climbed Gray's Peak. Gray's Peak is 14,278 feet tall. And it was hard. <laughs> the air up there is way too thin for a Texas boy, i got to tell you. And it was a grueling march, mile after mile of path. But you know what? When we got to the top, it was all worth it. I remember standing up there just, just soaking in the scenery. And in a word, it was, it was breathtaking. The valleys and the, and the forest and the bodies of water and then above me the clouds. I remember just soaking in that moment and then I, I began to go to the, to, the, to the south side and to the north and to the east and to the west. And I just wanted to try to soak in the, the breathtaking picture that I was seeing. And so as your tour guide in the book of Jude, allow me now to take you to the spiritual summit of Jude. I'll read it all together and then will briefly explore each breathtaking promise. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority be all, before all time, now and forever. Amen. And so Jude closes with what we call a doxology. This comes from two Greek words, doxa, which means glory and splendor, and logos, or logos, which means word or expression. And so in short, a doxology is an expression of praise. It's a short hymn in Scripture that praises God and expresses His glory. And we see this time and time again in Scripture. I provided some of those for you. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. 2 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. But it's important that we tie this doxology to the theme of Jude. In other words, Jude is not just poetically rounding out his letter. He's closing his appeal for us to contend for the faith by lifting up our eyes to the glory of God. You see, it's, it's there that we're going to find the ultimate courage and the rest that we need as we gaze into his sovereignty. And so, I just want to briefly point out three breathtaking aspects of God's glory. And the first is this, the glory of God's preserving power. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Let's stop there. In light of the apostasy that was around them, I think it would have been natural for Jude's readers to think, am I next? Am I going to be deceived? Am I going to stumble into this apostasy myself? And Jude's answer is simple, but it is, is profound. No. Why? Because of God. While it is true that true believers persevere, that is, they remain faithful to the gospel and to the end, God is the reason behind that perseverance. You see, God promises to protect believers from ever stumbling into apostasy. The word keep here is a military term, and it describes to guard or to watch over. God guards his children as a shepherd does his sheep and prevents them from falling into deception. And we see this in John chapter 10, verses 27 
through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Praise God. My Father who has given to them is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I want you to just just soak this in. I mean, just think for a moment how profound this is. Who but God alone can keep our wondering hearts from deception? You see, I know if it was up to me, I would have fell away years ago. But he who started a good work in me and in you, well, what? He'll be faithful, right, to complete it until the end. So praise God, right? Praise God for his preserving power. But Jude goes on, and he, and he reveals the glory of God's purifying grace. So starting again in verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and watch this, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Notice, first of all, the intensity of this promise. I mean, all through Scripture, whenever you see the glory of God in front of sinful men, what is the posture of that man or that woman? They fall down, right? And rightfully so, because sin and holiness of God are completely incompatible. But Jude's promise here is that there is coming a day where we will stand. And not only will we stand, but we will stand blameless. The word blameless is the same word to use to describe the purity of Christ in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood... Watch this, as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ was blameless, amen? He was completely acceptable to the Father, and so too, you and I as believers will someday stand blameless and acceptable before God. How is this possible? I mean, how could we ever hope to stand in the presence of God with the same purity and blamelessness of the Lamb of God? And we know this, right? There's only one answer, and that answer is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him, right, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so, All believers have received Christ's imputed righteousness. And right now, we're positionally blameless. But praise God, there is coming a day where we will experience perfect holiness in heaven. And not only will we stand blameless, but we will stand blameless with what? With great joy. With great joy. Praise God. Psalm 1611, you will make me known To me, the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Well, the final revelation of of God's glory that Jude gives is the glory of God's perfect sovereignty found in verse 25. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And in the midst of the upheaval that is caused by false teachers, Jude reminds us of one incredible truth. God is unshakable. As Martin Luther famously quoted, the devil is God's devil. God is not reacting to Satan's schemes, but ultimately he's using them for his purpose and his glory. Douglas Moo, he defines these terms and he says, glory speaks of God's weighty and majestic presence. Majesty speaks of his kingly status. Dominion speaks of his control over the world. And authority speaks of his intrinsic right to rule. All things. 
And notice the extent of his reign. Verse 25. The extent of his, his reign, it says, Before all time and now and forever. Amen. Before all time. Nothing in the past has escaped his sovereign purposes. And now, nothing in the present will counter his control. And forever, nothing in the future is going to overpower his reign. In short, God is perfectly sovereign and completely in control of everything. And as we stand at the precipice of Jude, my hope is that we soak in the awesomeness of God. And so in conclusion, I want to encourage you and I this morning to fight for the faith. September 11th, 2011, or 20, 2001, is a date we all will remember. We know that terrorists had taken over planes and caused great destruction. By 9.37 a.m., flights 11, flight 175 had crashed in the World Trade Center, and flight 77 had crashed into the Pentagon. And flight 93 was headed for the same fate into our nation's capital. But it was on this flight, however, that something changed. Those terrorists, their motive became exposed. And those people on that flight, instead of living in fear or sitting back in fatalism, they decided to fight. And so they fought they did. Now, in the end, that plane crashed and they lost their lives. And some may look at that and say, well, what was the point? Well, just ask the hundreds if not thousands of people that were saved because of their bravery. And spiritually speaking, may we do the same. May we stand in the gap against spiritual terrorists that are hurting and deceiving people and choose by faith to fight for the faith. Paul put it this way, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible letter Oh God, we are not adequate for these things. We know our weakness. We know, Lord, that we can do nothing. But we also know that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And so strengthen us, Lord, even now, that we would be willing to lay down our lives and fight for the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.